Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, Ben. Well, hey, welcome back, and thank you, Christopher, for filling in for me last week. I've, uh, I have not had a chance to listen to the episode yet. It came out just a, a couple days ago, but I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I'm really excited. And it's, it's nice to have someone to call when I have to jump out of town, <laughs> when I have to jump out of town really fast. But, uh, I heard, I've heard great things, Ben. A lot of people have given me some really good feedback for last week. Yeah, it went great. Um, we talked for two hours. I mean, we recorded for two hours. <laughs> we talked for longer than that. Um, oh my goodness! And and at the end, I kind of felt like, okay, yeah, we we've said what we needed to say, which we did. You know, we shouldn't have got, we wouldn't have been fair to go over two hours. And then we got done. Like the next couple of days, I was like, you know what? We didn't talk about this or this or this. We, you know, at this point, I almost feel like we could do a part two of section 76. Um, <laughs> although people would be like, oh my gosh, I just listened to you guys for two hours. I don't need to listen to any more of that. Let's move on. <laughs> but I was, That's it awesome. was fascinating. There, there's so many um, little avenues to discuss and, and, you know, section 76 is just so groundbreaking for uh, Latter-day Saint theology, right? It's it's foundational for for so much of that, and so there's a lot of different things, tangents you can go off on it. I mean, we got done, and Christopher and I started texting each other back and forth, and we're like, "Wait, we didn't talk about this. Wait, we didn't talk about this. Wait, we didn't talk about this." And like, yeah, it's just you know, we got a two hours, you know, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, thank again, thank you again, Christopher, for for standing in for me and. I know I'm going to be going on uh, the road one more time this summer, possibly two more times. So, so that'll probably, <laughs> I'll probably nudge him to, to ask one more time. But, uh, you know, so we got some really interesting sections today to talk about. We're covering DNC 77 through 80. And 77, you know, <laughs> Ben, 77 has never landed for me, like ever. I, it's I just, odd. I get it's, to seventy. It's one of the oddest sections. It really sure. is. I just, <laughs> I don't. Anyway, seventy-seven is Joseph Smith's explanation from certain passages in the Book of Revelation, and so there's a lot of questions. There's like a question and an answer, and anyway, come. To, there's actually a lot to talk about here, so we'll get into some things here, and then section seventy-eight. I have wanted to talk about section 78 for a while. So I'm actually pretty excited about section 78. There's some fascinating history. There are some great discussions about not just consecration and, and the way that we are to live economically, but how these stories are formed and how this history is formed and what these scriptures actually say. And then what is the difference between the United Firm and the United Order? 
because we're going to find out that there's a really important distinction there that uh, that we're just now kind of discovering within the last 10 years. So that'll be that'll be great. And then we have sections 79 and 80. And and you brought this up and like these have to be the shortest headings. <laughs> of any sections I, and they are they're very small they're very small revelations uh one to jared carter and then another revelation in 80 to stephen burnett and eden smith so we'll uh we'll talk just briefly about those you had some really good commentary on the chapter heading of uh of section 79 and what that possibly means so we'll get into it uh, but seven section 77. So Ben, you, I'm going to have you lead this one and at least d- tell okay. me a few things that you, that stand out to you and, and tell me, tell me what lands for you or what questions you had. I know you had some, uh, uh, an interesting observation about the chapter heading about the section heading anyway, about, uh, what it means to have received the following explanation and what it po- might possibly mean for Joseph and his revelation. Yeah, so almost every single section of the Doctrine and Covenants starts off with this word revelation, right? So everything is, almost everything is termed a revelation. There are uh, several exceptions, but the the vast majority of the sections start with this word revelation. So they are termed revelations. And so it just brings, you know, it just raises the question, well, what do you mean by revelation? Well, Joseph Smith meant a lot of different things by revelation, apparently. Sometimes he meant straight up visions, like section 76. Sometimes he meant impressions he received. Sometimes he meant an angel came to him and said, do this. Sometimes he meant I was reading a book and I read something in the book and it was really good. And so I'm going to call it a revelation. You know, like <laughs> he, it was a very broad term of revelation. Basically, um, it, it seems to me that we could term anything that came through Joseph Smith. Sometimes we get these words to Joseph Smith, and sometimes we get these words through Joseph Smith, right? And um, I don't know that there's really a distinction there. It may have just been the person who's writing the section heading is like, you know what? I've said to a lot. I'm just going to say through on this one, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so I don't know that there's really a distinction in meaning there. But a lot of this just boils down to Joseph Smith received knowledge and whether it came through some vision or from an angel or through an impression of the Holy Ghost, or he was reading something and that we could say, well, that's kind of like an impression from the Holy Ghost because it impressed upon his mind that this was important. But, but, you know, the actual source of maybe the language or the word was actually some other reading. And we get this um, when we we talk about his translation, right? Because uh, especially this section is in connection, he says, in connection with the translation of the scriptures. Now, we already know from two podcasts ago when we were talking, Shadow, that Joseph Smith relied heavily on a particular commentary of the Bible in order to inform um, his translation of the Bible, quote-unquote translation. So uh, a lot of these things that we call revelation and translation can really be grouped together. There's different types of revelation. And it, it we're not saying that some are from God and some aren't from God. We're just saying that there's lots of ways this came about. And Joseph Smith was very liberal with how he used the term. And so when we approach it, we can be liberal with how we interpret that as well. And, and that's fair, I think. Um, so when he says, I received the following explanation of the revelation of St. John, we don't have to take what we read 
here as if it was God speaking in Joseph Smith's ear, this is what this scripture means. I think it's plenty fair to take this as Joseph Smith was reading a commentary about these particular things, and the commentary rang true to him, or it explained something to him that he hadn't understood before. It spoke to him in a way that he felt was important and from the Spirit, and he recorded it down as a revelation. If it works for us, if it helps us, if it teaches us about who God is, great. If it doesn't really do anything for us, that's okay too. You know, and, and, and there's different times in your life when certain scriptures will will be more important and impactful to you than others. I think you were saying, Shiloh, about this section that anytime you've ever read it, there's nothing really that's just like hit you like a ton of bricks, like maybe some other things that you've read. And that's okay. You know, maybe in 10 years, 10-year-older Shiloh will read section 77 and be like, boom, why did I not see this before? This is the most amazing thing I've ever read in my life, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> So um, that can happen, you know? Yeah, and that, and that does happen regularly. I think, I think for me, and even admitting my bias, and I love moments like this when I can actually find my bias and, and then kind of point my finger at it, because it, it makes me smile, because I love finding the holes in, in why I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling. And I think for the longest time, when I came to my discipleship or when it came to scriptures, I, I always felt guilty. It's like, oh, I feel guilty. This Maybe the scripture doesn't land for me or that, you know, the, maybe I don't know enough about Isaiah that I'm supposed to or, or whatever. So I would say sometimes when we read scripture, we were reading under the narrative that like every word here is Jesus speaking. And if it doesn't land for us, then that mean we that must mean that we don't really like Jesus that much. And that's just not fair, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's just not fair, you know? <laughs> uh, we need to be more more merciful towards ourselves. If, if a scripture doesn't land for us, that's fine. Um, you know, we're not the only person in the world. <laughs> it, it's true. And, and scriptures will come and, and these are here. I found a lot of value recently in, in what's called Lectio Divina. And this is a, a method really of, and I'm kind of oversimplifying this a little bit, but it's a method of allowing the experience of reading scripture to be able to reveal to you something else that's really even different than what you're reading. And as I've talked with this to other people, everyone seems to have had this experience. It's like when you're, you're, you're sitting down and you're reading about faith, you know, and, and you're getting into like some, some really great allegories of faith. And then you have this idea about going in and talking with one of your kids and it has nothing to do with faith. It just, it was an idea. And so it's like, oh, I'm going to go and talk to my, and that ends up doing something, right? And you're like, wow, that was so purposeful and meaningful that I went and I did that. And anyway, that's Lectio Divina. It's this pouring your intentionality in through the scriptures to reveal something. So, you know, as I've gotten into the book of Revelation, I, it, my bias is that throughout my life, I have been in circles that have interpreted the book of Revelation to be like X, Y, and Z. I mean, the book of Revelation is like every Christian's favorite go-to doomsday, end of days book. It's like mean whatever you want it to mean. Right? And so, <laughs> and so I have lost count. In fact, there was a, I distinctly remember, and my parents were gifted this six, uh, v six VHS, well, you know, they had six tapes. It was a VHS series. And it was just some old guy at a whiteboard who had some like one of those uh, film slides, like the old missionary film slides. And he had put together this 
like six hour presentation on the meaning of the book of revelation. And he was pulling in like conspiracies from Russia and things coming up from Venezuela and other countries from Africa. And he had this huge, huge system coming into like geopolitics and everything about how the book of revelation was. And I remember this, this tape series so well, my, my parents never gave any credence to it, but it sat there among the VHS anyway, like, like our movies. And so like on Sundays when, or, or any other days when I was so absolutely bored, I was like, mom, can I watch a video? And, you know, <laughs> and like half the time she'd be like, no, I'm not. And, and I, and I kind of knew the attitude she was in, like all kids know their parents forwards and backwards. So it's like, I, I knew what I could get away with, what I could not get away with or what she would say yes and no to. And so I came at one point <laughs> and my go-to was all like, I'll even watch the book of revelation videos. <laughs> when you're a kid, it's like, it doesn't matter. It's TV. It, I can watch infomercials. It's TV. That's right. Right. <laughs> and so, and, th- and that's the point where she would look at me and she knew I was just c- so completely bored and she always had mercy on me. And so I, I would, I would pull that out as my, as, as like my, my ace up the sleeve. And cause I knew she always had mercy on me. So anyway, when I, we get into these book of revelation uh, scriptures, I've always like, somebody else is making interpretations on, you know, forget that it's Joseph Smith, right? But it's just like, another interpretation of Revelation. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway. Yeah, they're a dime a dozen. Sure. But but that's great. I love what you said about Revelation. Everything that we do in our life is is a matter of revelation and i and i i'm on this really big mode kick right now and and about how discuss you know the modalities of the gospel and of living and seeing the scriptures and prayer and church and the temple and blessings and every every religious activity or even secular activity we do as a mode of focusing our intentionality into that experience and seeing what manifests and seeing that modes are almost always, if not always, stories. A mode is nothing more really than an idea that something is the way that it is. And yet we treat it as though it is real and pour our intentionality into it and it produces real life experiences. And so revelation I see is itself is, is a mode that whenever God speaks to us, how God comes to us is, is a mode in itself. And just like, I loved everything that you brought up about Joseph Smith. You know, it was it that he, he was given revelation from an angel, whether he was given revelation through a prompting, through, through seeing words on a stone, you know, who knows what he was experiencing. Just right. like two sections ago, was he getting revelation when he ended up lifting whole sections out of Clark's commentary to end up give us the JST and the quote unquote inspired version of the, of the Holy Bible. Well, that's revelation to him too. So it's, it's like, what is revelation? Well, it's everything that is a communication with God that God communicates you through. And that's awesome. Yeah. I I think that would be termed, you know, one of Joseph Smith's powerful personality traits was his ability to recognize revelation from all kinds of different sources. And this this can be taken in, in different ways. Like, you know, you could take it in a negative sense and be like, well, you know, Joseph Smith just uh, as a charlatan just, you know, made up revelation from everything that he saw. 
And on the other hand, you could take it, well, he was so spiritually minded that everything he experienced, he said, hey, there's something to be learned about God in this, right? From the perspective of someone who's seeking God, it's much more beneficial for us to look at it that way and say, hey, if, if Joseph Smith, you know, saw it in this way, what, what is it? What does that teach me about how maybe I can live my life in a way that sees things in a more spiritual way? This, you know, sort of when we, when we get into uh, this discussion of translation that we, that's kind of been a theme over the past several podcasts, you know, we're, we're going to bring up the con, uh, the context later in the history of the book of Abraham and the whole can of worms that that brings out sort of the, the prevailing um, narrative around that now that, that sort of has changed in the past probably 10, 15 years is, is around this concept of translation, right? And it's, it's morphing more, you know, from a literal translation of some physical text towards oh, well, that was a catalyst for a spiritual experience of something that God revealed to him, and then that was written down, right? And in, in either case, I think this just brings out this concept again of revelation, that wherever Joseph Smith looked, he found evidence that God was revealing himself and and took that and, and pulled a revelation from it, right? And... Um, there's something to be said from that for that, just even in the way that uh, this would be a different way, but even in the way that Christ taught, you know, he sat down with the people and taught them parables. And all these parables were about things that were just around them as they were talking, right? Oh, look at the flowers. Let me tell you about how you can learn about the character of God by looking at these flowers. Oh, you know, bread. This is how you can learn about God. Fish, this is how you can learn about God from that. And so just just taking things in your everyday life and saying, we can see God in this and this is how, is it's a mode, right? Life becomes a mode whereby the character of God can be revealed. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to think about that one for a while. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> I'm going to write that down right there in my little margin. So in uh, so in section 77, Ben, you had a couple yeah. of uh, questions that stood out to you and that uh, you had started to talk about. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you saw something there that I didn't, but that's really <laughs> interesting. <laughs> well, you know, there's some stuff brought up here at the beginning because he, he brings up these beasts, right? So beasts, we don't really use that term anymore. We just say animals. Right. So he brings up that he sees animals in heaven. And this isn't a not a uniquely Latter-day Saint theology, but it is kind of distinct from from other maybe Christian sects that that basically just don't talk about it. They say, well, we don't really know, you know, what what God's plan for animals is or whatever. But, you know, Joseph Smith here kind of gives this this hint at this much more expansive type of theology or even metaphysics here, because on the one hand, he starts off talking about human beings and their spiritual likeness, their spiritual being, being in the image or express likeness of their of their physical being. In other words, our spirits actually look like our bodies. Again, this is not a uniquely Latter-day Saint concept, but it's pretty distinct. And, and it informs so much of our theology uh, plan of salvation, conception of the character of God, 
this just this idea that even as spirits were created in the image of of God, which is also the image or the likeness of our physical bodies as they are now. And this is elsewhere in in scripture, but it's brought up here in, in this section. And I it, it's pretty pretty foundational type of doctrine, um, I think, in, in Latter-day Saint uh, theology. But then to bring animals into it is sort of this interesting turn because you know, humans are are often in in mainstream Christianity talked about as you know the only being with a soul, right? A soul that can be saved. And Joseph Smith here in this is saying, "Oh no, actually, animals have spirits; they have souls, and they get saved too in heaven, and they experience joy and exaltation just like people do." And you're like, "Wait, what? <laughs> what are you talking about?" <laughs> and so I. I that's just really fascinating, interesting to me. And as far as like, what do we do with that? It do, it can teach us a little bit, I think, about the character of God if we take that and, and go with it, that um, God's creation and his purposes are much broader and eternal and expansive than our minds often want to accept or, or even imagine. And that, that was kind of the theme of section 76 is that, you know, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon are seeing all these things and trying to describe them. And at the end, they just kind of give up and they say, look, you know, we tried to describe all this stuff, but it is way beyond anything that we could ever put into words. You guys just have to have the experience. And so I see a little bit of that here in section 77 as, as, as sort of hinting at, hey, there's, there's much more to this character and, and God's purposes than uh, we really thought of before. So here on, there was a little bit over here on verse 12, and and come back to it, Ben, if you have anything more before verse 12. But when I was up at uh, a few weeks ago, I I attended the Mormon History Association conference up in Park City, and there was a presenter, Ben Spackman, who is a PhD candidate for the Claremont Graduate University that I'm going to, and he's doing his doctoral thesis on the idea of science, the convergence of science and religion. And he's using the Latter-day Saint conversation of how the idea of evolution came into the church and how the church has, has talked about it. And and in that conversation, he had a presentation about the intellectual history and origin of how the the idea of a young earth came into the Mormon existence and into the yeah. Mormon, uh, into the intellectual sphere here. And I didn't even, I wasn't even thinking that this was a conversation, but I'm like, man, what a, what an awesome thing to, to study and to, and to, and to think about. So as I sat there listening, I thought, I actually thought about when we were, I was reading 77 here, it says, we are to understand that has God made the world in six days and on the seventh day that he finished his work and sanctified it and also formed man out of the dust of the earths, even so in the beginning, the seventh thousand years, will the Lord God sanctify the earth and complete the salvation of man and judge all the things and shall redeem all things except that which he hath not put into his power when he shall have sealed all things unto the end of all things. Okay. So going back to the to the the six days of creation, and and so this is what kind of stood out to me on on this was this story about how certain ideas sometimes enter our religious culture and even sometimes our religious manuals, our church manuals, that don't really have a doctrinal foundation, 
but are simply matters of institutional luck. I'm going to, I'm going to use the word luck because <laughs> some ideas just by luck end up getting into the manuals and, and how this, this idea of evolution and come to find out it's a really kind of brand new idea that came about in the 1900s because, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to kind of botch it because I recorded it uh, on the audio and I haven't had a chance to transcribe it yet for my own personal records. But in it, Ben Speckman talk about how the original idea of a young earth of, of like the 6,000 year old earth and have how we know young earth uh, creationism was made by a seventh day Adventist. And this guy, he, he wasn't really scientifically trained. He was just kind of religiously trained and the book had moderate success. And there was another seventh day Adventist who ended up copying the book and kind of expanding it out a little bit. And then it was a third Christian who, if my memory serves, he, it's kind of one of those ideas that the only people that a lot of Orthodox Christians dislike more than Mormons are Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses. And so there's this, this other Christian guy came along who he, he's like, I can't, I, I like the idea of this book, but I can't quote Seventh-day Adventists and sell this to Christians. And so he basically reworked it and rewrote the whole book and maybe plagiarized is a little bit too harsh. But he definitely took all of the ideas that had, from the two books that had come before him, and then he kind of put it into his own words. And Joseph Fielding Smith ends up getting a hold of this book. And so Joseph Fielding Smith is like, I really like this book. And he takes it to James E. Talmadge of the Twelve, who's a, who's a scientist and works, does a lot of work with geology. And he's like, what do you think about this book? And Talmadge reviews it, and he's like, it's junk. <laughs> like, it's, it's, just no, it's just not good. <laughs> Like there's, there's nothing observable in, in the world that, that talks about this. And, and so then Joseph Fielding Smith is like, but I really like it. And Talmadge is like, well, that's fine. You can really like it, but it's still not any good. So anyway, <laughs> they, they go kind of the back and the rounds and Joseph Fielding Smith likes his book so much that he start, he writes kind of one of his own. And he, I have, the, I have the book myself and I forget the name. I think it's Man, His Origins, and Destiny, I think is the book that James... That uh, sounds right. Yeah, that uh, Joseph Fielding Smith ends up writing, Man, His Origins, and Destiny. And he's wanting to kind of have it scientifically validated, and he can't find anybody <laughs> who would sign off on it until finally there is this guy who ends up moving into his ward who is a Yale-trained physicist who ends up teaching his gospel doctrine. And, but he does a pretty decent job apparently. And so Joseph Fielding Smith has him read this young earth creationist book and then finally read his own book and then asks him if he would write the foreword to it. So now Joseph Fielding Smith, because he has this guy in his ward, this who's, who's a Yale trained physicist, not a geologist, but a physicist ends up writing the foreword to his book. And that's his scientific stamp of approval. And so then we kind of enter into this new age and the history, the history gets a little bit more complicated and, and I don't want to get beyond myself too much, but there were two other gentlemen that I remember who Joseph Fielding Smith ended up working into the, uh, either into BYU, I think it was into BYU and also into the correlation department so that when, and then they were both young earth creationists. And then uh, finally a fourth book in Christianity was written and it was a uh, co-authored, I believe. And, and it was from this book that was co-authored, this fourth installment from kind of from the Christian community. Uh, 
it was from that book that the manual that we have from the church, the Old Testament manual, and everybody knows it. It's the Institute manual, but it has like Moses, I think it's Moses, you know, as, as a priest, you know, giving a blessing to other priests in front of the tabernacle. It's a very famous picture. Right. Uh, yeah. But the whole section in Genesis there were written by those two gentlemen that Joseph Fielding Smith had put in there because they were young earth creationists who had read these other books from the Seventh-day Adventist genealogy, intellectual genealogy. So we end up getting this young earth creationism in the Mormon church by way of two Seventh-day Adventists who end up and Joseph Fielding Smith, who really liked this idea and just happened to be in the right committee in the right place to be the person who'd be able to put people where they need to do to make this go in the manual. And all the time, the scientists in the quorum were like, this isn't good science. And so it's, it's just really interesting how that stuff gets into our, gets into our, uh, our scriptural interpretation. So I think that a lot of the times we can come down here and we can start reading about how God made the world in six days. Well, be just before we were talking about this, Ben, I, I completely forgot about the word in Hebrew, but when I looked it up and it's yom, right? It's yom. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yom is used as a 24 hour period. But it's also always used in in its context as an undefined period of time. It could have been any period of time. It could have been a it could have been a billion years. Could have been seventy two seconds. Like it it doesn't measure like absolute time. It can have a like a day like a twenty four hour day like the, the sun comes up the sun comes down. But it also is more generally used as an epic of of some type of meaning. So the first day, the first yom, as it were could have been maybe a billion years and the second yom could have been 30 seconds and the third yom could have been a thousand years and the fifth one could have been you know two billion years it's just that's the way it goes it's talking about kind of different distinct periods of time but yet when we sit down here to read our scriptures with our kind of western eyes and especially as latter-day saints when we come through and we read our manuals and we want to place such credence in our manuals it really does affect our hermeneutics and it affects the way that we interpret the scripture and we interpret these things as absolute truth so anyway as i was reading section verse 12 all these thoughts were coming to me and and uh, and that's what stood out to me on that one yeah so the the discussion of the age of the earth like in in a biblical context is is always this huge you know can of worms i guess you could say and um I, you know you you talked about how uh maybe it wasn't doctrinal and and i think i might make a little bit of a caveat to that and and some of it's going to be semantics right i think that it did in in one sense become doctrinal depending on how you want to define that term. But if we actually go back to what we would term the revelations, right, the actual scriptures, there's not a whole lot of basis for it. And and I'll say why I, I think that is. We have these words, days, and periods of a thousand years and, and thrown around, especially here in this section 77. But these are not these are not definite literal uh, measurements of time. Okay, and that's borne out in in several ways. Um, one, at least in our in our scriptural canon, is what we have in the Book of Abraham. Um, the Book of Abraham doesn't use the word day; it uses time, like you were talking about. So the Book of Abraham conceptualizes the different creative periods as times 
or as periods and not as specific days that are even all measured the same, right? So like the first time may have been a billion years and the second time may have been two billion years, right? There's no, there's nothing that says the each of these creative periods was, uh, they were evenly divided increments, right? They're conceptualized in terms of days because a day metaphorically, symbolically is you get up, you go to work, right? And then you come back at the end of the day and you're done with that period of work. And then you get up again in the morning and you go out and work. So it's like these periods where a certain thing is accomplished. And then there's a a closing of that period and an opening of a new period, right? So that's sort of the, the scriptural um, treatment of this um, and, and I think there's a lot of reasons and I, not that we don't really have time to get into necessarily for, for why that, that I think is most accurately de- uh, depicted that way. If we go back to verse six, the answer in verse six, it, uh, at the end of it, it says, uh, concerning this earth during the 7,000 years of its continuance or its temporal existence. So, Let's unpack this a little bit. Okay, so this is saying that the temporal existence of the earth is 7,000 years. Okay, and then uh, this discussion about all these different seals sort of leads us to assume that the millennium or the seventh seal, what we have called that that 7,000 years, is supposed to be roughly the period that Christ comes and reigns on the earth, right? We call it the millennium because it's supposed to be the 7,000 years. All of the history that we're talking about right now must be fit into 6,000 years. Well, we know we're 2000 AD, so that must mean that, you know, the temporal existence of the earth began at 4,000 BC, right? This, this I think, in, in our minds, is, our minds, sort of the Latter-day Saint tradition has been the conceptualization of of this and really not just latter-day saint i I, we just took it from broader mainstream christianity uh, as well um that you know adam left the garden at 4000 bc essentially again you know we talked about how i don't i don't think that there's um there's a whole lot that we can go into to say that that has a lot of basis in in revelation that's uh, really just a traditional, conventional interpretation of it. There's so much more that we can get out of uh, changing our perspective on that. Even if we want to say that like the actual literal man, Adam, lived at 4000 BC, there's, that, that still doesn't um, require that we conceptualize the earth as only being 6,000 years old, right? There's, there's so much more to that. Uh, the discussion gets... Uh, very detailed and and nuanced in um, in how you go about it, at least from a scientific perspective. So uh, one of the things that I want to bring up with this section in relation to that is, you know, anytime we talk about numbers um, in the scriptures, they are almost always, almost in every single case, numbers, specific numbers are brought up in a symbolic way to represent a, a type of thing. Okay, so this is borne out in this section if we go over to verse 11. What are we to understand by sealing the 144,000 out of all the tribes of Israel, 12,000 out of every tribe? 
So I think we'd be hard pressed to find a person, and maybe this person exists, who would take this scripture that talks about the 144,000 out of the book of Revelation, at least within the Latter-day Saint tradition, and says this literally means only 144,000 people. And this literally means only 12,000, not a person less, not a person more, that are literal descendants of each tribe. Like, I, I just think you're not going to find somebody that uh, that thinks that is what this is talking about, right? This is symbolic numbers. Well, what are they symbolic of? Well, actually, the answer in 11 really kind of tells us why they're symbolic. It says, we're to understand that those who are sealed are high priests ordained of the holy order of God to administer the everlasting gospel, for they are they who are ordained out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people by the angels of whom is given power over the nations of the earth to bring as many as will come to the church of the firstborn. Okay, so first off, if they're out of every nation, tongue, and people, then they aren't literally from just the 12 tribes of Israel because that's not every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, right? And so we really, this really pushes us in the direction of viewing this as symbolic. What is it symbolic of? Well, we have 12 tribes, that is the covenant of the gospel, and then every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, 12 is that number of completion, right? And then you have 12 times 12, which means that you have utter completion. This is like um, sort of what makes something eternal or infinite, right? Not only do you have it completed as 12, but you have 12 times 12. It's like seven times 70 when Jesus says forgive, right? He doesn't mean count up your forgiveness things. And when you get to 490, it's like, I've done everything I need to do. Right? <laughs> right. I don't have to forgive anymore after 490. No, that's not what that means. Just like it doesn't mean literally just 144,000. Just like it doesn't mean literally 6,000 years. These are symbolic numbers that we're supposed to understand something from. Periods of creation um, where the Lord is is doing his work. And those, you know, those that necessarily have to be these definite defined period of time. Um, I'm, I'm probably preaching to the choir on this. I don't even know if anybody that listened to this podcast would would conceptualize it in that way. I think the 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 holding to that concept of the young earth is I think a mentality or a belief that isn't only falling away in broader Christianity but uh, pretty heavily in the church as well, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think I think there's a very strong fundamentalist faction that is still trying to keep on to the literal literalist interpretations. But as a as a broad membership, I don't even think most members would even think about it. <laughs> I don't I don't think they actually literally even really think about it. It's like one of those conversations they kind of keep in in reserve for whenever someone wants to talk about dinosaurs. Then you you kind of pull that conversation off the shelf for about fifteen minutes. You, you talk about a few Mormon myths that you once heard of back in seminary, sure. and you put that conversation back on the shelf. You know, <laughs> I think I think that's where <laughs> where most people are with that kind of conversation. I don't think there's a lot of really deep diving into that. That, uh, into that doctrine. But it, for those who do, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I see a lot of people who are still very adamantly fundamental, literalistic. You know, I've lost count the Sunday school lessons I've been in and gospel doctrines that we want to take an absolute literalist point of view of the scriptures. And sure. I think, I think you're right though. I think there's very much a new wave of starting to realize that that literalism 
is very much a hallmark of our Western interpretation of Scripture as opposed to how they were originally written. I think we're finally kind of coming full circle to recognizing once again that the scriptures in farm were far more meant to be metaphorical and allegorical and symbolic in that in that mythological value. And what I mean by mythological value is not that just like we've talked about with myth before, not that it's a false story, but that the story was not written for its his its historicity. Well, in one sense, it's more true. It's just, um, it's true in a way that can't be expressed any other way except by a particular narrative or story for us to understand. And so like, it's uh, what might be termed meta true, right? Like it's, it's more than true. Um, it literally, like it's true metaphorically, which is like, like I said, it's more than true. <laughs> right now. And this is a really kind of hard concept to originally grasp when we come from a literalist point of view, and I love that more true um, aspect of it, because it's hinting that is there something that's more true than if it was absolutely historically accurate? Is there a more true yes. aspect to that? And the answer is the yes. And that's what the scriptures are pointing towards. It's pointing towards this thing that words can't really describe. And so the garden, when we talk about the garden myth... We're not talking about it in terms of it being true or false or historical or non-historical. We're talking about that thing, which is more true than even if it wasn't, even if the story was historical. Right. Right. And so I love, uh, I love what Richard Rohr says about, he says, the scriptures are always true. They're always true. Sometimes they're even historical. Right. It's, it's that thing. And so, yeah, we, bringing that back to what you were talking about here with verse 11, I think that I, I love that concept of the 12. We have the 12 tribes of Israel, but then it, that's not the point. That's not, that's not where the whole conversation is at. We can have that conversation. And when we actually have the scriptures from those who are working from that angle and working within the 12 tribes, that takes up the entirety of their conversation. So as Latter-day Saints, we think that's the actual point. Like that, that is the conversation as opposed to a part of the conversation. And, and I love when you bring that out, that 12 times 12, then all of a sudden you're, you're working from an expanse of the original idea that completely blows the mind of the original literalist point of view, because this expands out so much, especially that seven times seven times 70, who is literally counting the times that they have to forgive another person. It's supposed to be absurd. There's an absurdist perspective here of this, the, the symbolic. And so we start to realize the, it's like Jesus is saying, I, no one's going to count. And if you're counting, that's absurd. And so in that way, you're moving beyond the numbers, beyond that which you can quantify, beyond that which is, you know, one of a number, you know, this number and that number. You're it's the moving. hyperbole that's used to to be a metaphor of something that's eternal or or you know beyond our 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 earthly grasp. Yeah, it's something that transcends all all religious denominations, all organized right. and institutional religion. It's the one that transcends all spiritualism. It's it's the thing that transcends it all, and yet the perennial truth that ends up 
coming underneath it, like that cosmic river of, of, of reality that undergirds and, and flows and re- beneath all the surface of reality that prophets and prophetesses and priestesses and priests and, and all the people have tapped into throughout human history and that has sprung up into their culture through their language and their traditions and has manifest in various ways, but yet the fundamentals are always the same because it's that thing that everything points towards. And yet we so often just want to put it into a little box because if we put it into a box, just like what we talked about with, uh, we've talked about it so often with the cloud, you know, with the Jaredites and with the, the, the Israelites, Israelites well. yeah, yeah, the Israelites, yeah. how they're following that cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. You see, you can't put fire you can't just put the flame into a box and it exists in a box and you can't hold a cloud. A cloud is, is this nebulous thing that kind of sits out there. In fact, my family, we just went to San Francisco oh, about a week and a half ago. And it was one of those beautiful mornings where you get out and, and the, the fog, that really thick San Francisco fog has rolled in. And yet we went across the Golden Gate, Golden Gate heading out into Marin and and we went up around that little pass where you can then take a look back and look south and see the, it's, it's the famous shot of, you know, the, the north shot of the Golden Gate Bridge looking south. And we got out there to that point, we we're taking pictures, but half of it is, is still in the fog and we are completely encompassed in the cloud. And I'm, I'm sitting there talking to my kids. I'm like, guys, this is what it's like to be in a cloud. Like that cloud that's way up there in the sky. This is, this is what it would be if you fell through it. <laughs> like, like, like this is it. This is, this is the cloud. And it's, it's almost not something you can see in front of you. It's something that you can only see like 10 feet in front of you, right? It's something that is, you can't put this cloud into a box. You can't put this cloud into a, into an identity of your own making. But yet that's exactly what the Israelites did with the golden calf. Yeah. They wanted to make a God in their image. Define their it. Yeah. Def- yeah. Define it. And this whole thing is about breaking God out of the box. It, it, it's it's pointing to something you can't define. And yet God can at some point come to you and manifest to you like he did the brother of Jared and to Moses. They saw the face of God. But yet the words that we use to see the face of God, I, I can absolutely guarantee you that if you were to ask the brother of Jared or Moses, what was really that experience like? Like, 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 tell me in words exactly what that experience is like so that I could like be as though I could have experienced it myself. And just like trying to explain the taste of salt, it's impossible. Because even the experience of having the experience with God, that glimpse with God, is without words. And so you can just point towards it. I, I I love it. I love it. Great, uh, great, great use there of uh, of the hundred and forty four there. I like that. Yeah. So I mean, you you said something interesting that made me think back to to verse six because you know you say you ask the brother of Jared what was that experience like and like <laughs> you you can't express it. So this is what is is termed as mystery, right? And this is something you you shut your mouth about because you can't the words can't express it so over here in verse 6 it said uh, we're to understand that it contains the revealed will mysteries and the works of god the hidden things of his economy so hidden things or mysteries right these are things you have to shut your mouth about because uh, the more that you try to express and explain them 
the more you get off track of what they really are, <laughs> right? The more you try to define the, the edges of that cloud, the more it is not a cloud anymore, you know, like it, it, it turns into something else that's, that isn't right, you know? So, uh, I think that, that, that's an interesting point about that. Um, there were a few other things that I marked in 77, but but nothing quite as interesting, I think, as, as what we talked about. So I'm okay with moving on to 78. Okay, let's do it. So 78. <laughs> hmm. This is fun. So let's just do the history real fast. So for the longest time, we have had this idea called the United Order. And the United Order has been kind of this dummy down or maybe a lower law of the law of consecration is kind of is really how we've defined it. And I've, so, I've always heard it uh, conceptualized as the the nuts and bolts, like the, there's the law of consecration and then the United Order is how we live the law of consecration, right? So ooh, that's, anyway, a, that's, that's what I've kind of heard. Oh, that's awesome too. Um, and, and tithing, in tithing and the things I've heard is even below the, the United Order. It's just, it's, it's down there. So the United Order, this is just a fast, <laughs> I remember when I first came across this, it was actually my wife. My wife is the one she was studying. There's a BYU article out about it. If you Google United Firm BYU article, it'll pull up. It always pulls up the first search. Um, that's where I first learned about this. But through the Joseph Smith Papers Project, we had <laughs> we came to find out there's some very interesting things about the United Order that we did not actually know before. Number one, the United Order is not a thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just not a thing. It, it was, let, let me rephrase that. The United Order is not a thing like we thought it was. So what was it? Well, come to find out. So, Ben, I have a 2009 set of scriptures. And every time I read a scripture heading from my 2009 scriptures, you say, that's not what it says. And I'm like, that is, it's right there in my, in my thing. He's like, my scriptures say this. And obviously your scriptures are newer than 2009. Now, Mine are truer than yours. That's right. <laughs> so I, I think it's going to be a little bit uh, easier for the, for the listener, if, uh, if you haven't heard the story yet, to, to get the story. And then I'll read you the section heading that's in my scriptures. And then Ben, you read the section heading that's in your scriptures. And then we're going to talk just a few minutes about what it's like to create history. What does it mean to create history? And how do we create our narratives? Okay. So just real fast, what had happened was when the saints were moving to Missouri, they had this idea to set up a mercantile store that they called the United Firm. And the United Firm was this idea that when the saints came in, who had a lot of possessions or had enough possessions that they could go in and clear land and can, can build a home and they might even have some money. What they would do is they would come into Missouri and they would walk over to the Bishop and they, who was over the United firm. He was one of the three men who was in charge of the United firm as a mercantile. And they would hand over and sign over all of their earthly possessions to the mercantile. And, and it was just a regular business, a regular mercantile, just like any other mercantile. And then what would happen is they would be then gifted back in a stewardship, a, a stewardship title to their, their, what was, the, what was their property. And then the mercantile having these, uh, these commodities now on their books, now that the mercantile quote unquote, legally owned these things because they had been gifted over. Now that they legally owned them, then they could actually take these commodities to the bank 
and lend against them. So they could actually get real money from the bank borrowed against the mercantile's assets, which were the people's assets they'd gifted to the mercantile. Oh, this is a really funny story. So what had happened was, <laughs> is the mercantile, like it happened to a few times, went belly up. And it, it ended up uh, not doing really its thing. And there's a really long history to it. But then the bank came looking for, because you know, they defaulted on their payments, the bank came looking for the assets, which happened to be everybody's personal property, which wasn't their personal property because they'd given it to the mercantile who had, stu- who had given it back as a stewardship. So they didn't really legally have their own property anymore. They just had stewardship to the mercantile's property. It became a, th- a mess. So during this time when the creditors came knocking, they were, they were sending letters back and forth from Missouri to Kirtland, where Joseph was at. And so they were, e- they were emailing. They were mailing each other back and forth. And when that would happen, oftentimes their letters would get intercepted by the creditors Mm -hmm. and so sending mail was not always secure and then the creditors would look at clues in the letters to find out where joseph was at or where anybody else was at that they could go and they could either get or put into jail or do whatever they need to do to get their money back for the bank well the saints recognized that this became a problem and so one of the ways to circumvent this was that they ended up giving everybody involved a new code name, a new secret name, a a pseudonym that they would use then when writing the letters so that the couriers, if they were to intercept the letters, wouldn't know who was who and who was where and what they were talking about. And so, for instance, the United Firm was no longer the United Firm. They called it the United Order. And you ended up with with certain people like Joseph Smith ended up having one, one of his five code names was Enoch. And so you and so you ended up having this really interesting thing about the United Order after the Order of Enoch, which just which was just meaning that it was the mercantile that Joseph was a part of. But what it ended up being written down in scripture before they decoded the whole thing was that there was this whole ancient United Order that was after the Order of Enoch in the city of Zion. This is how the city of Zion did their stuff, right? And then it became a really big mess. Well, they made a lot of sections like this where they gave everybody code names and those code names stayed in the DNC when they would publish these revelations well into the 1900s. And then when they went to revert back to the original name so that everybody could know who they were talking about, because the saints, when they would read the code names, they didn't have the key to know who they were talking about. So they went to revert back. Well, some of the names weren't changed. So United Order stayed United Order and United and Enoch stayed Enoch and didn't get changed back to Joseph Smith. And then to kind of add to the confusion, when Brigham Young came out to Utah, it's arguable about whether or not he knew what he was doing or whether or not he was complicit with it. But he started to talk about the United Order as a particular thing, like it was a real thing. And then that's when we ended up really advancing this kind, this concept of the United Order, um, either from his ignorance of what was going on or from just from an intentionality perspective that there was a story about the United Order and he was just using what he had at his disposal to keep the saints alive. Well, I think it's more um, likely that this was this term that he had heard thrown around for this concept. And it was something more that they wanted to exper- experiment with. So it was like, okay, well, you know, this is what we're going to do. It's a United Order thing. But anyway. Yeah. 
So, for instance, in section 78, my 2009 DNC says, Revelation given through Joseph Smith the prophet at Hiram, Ohio, March 1832. The order given of the Lord to Joseph Smith for the purpose of establishing a storehouse for the poor, it was not always desirable that the identity of the individuals whom the Lord addressed in the Revelation should be known by the world. Hence, the publication of this and some subsequent revelations by, from the brethren were referred to by other than their own names. When the necessity had passed for keeping the names of the individuals unknown, their real names were then were thereafter given in brackets. Since there exists no vital need today to continue the code names, the real names only are now used herein as given in the original manuscripts. So this is kind of interesting. This is a kind of interesting way of writing the history. And I don't know if they knew about the actual history when they wrote this, but this is a very, very kind way of being able to write history where, (laughs) where it shows that the Lord didn't necessarily want everybody's identity to be known. Right. And for the individual, and when it came time that there's no vital need to be able to hide the names, well, the reason why they were hiding the names is because they were defaulting on their, on, on the, on the, the mercantile loan. So, there was a reason that they needed to have the code names. Anyway, so, so that's my old section 78 heading, a really interesting way of being able to write history and to be able to kind of produce history and, and to frame that. Ben, what does yours say in, in yours, uh, in your edition? So when they started doing more with the Joseph Smith Papers project, that's when they have learned a lot more about this conceptualization of the United Order versus United Firm and how those things related and how the terms got all switched and and then you know perpetuated in one direction or another to mean different things when they were really referring back to the same thing that didn't mean at all what they were talking about <laughs> so again you know this all comes this this new section heading a lot of it comes out of uh the the scholarship that's happened with the Joseph Smith papers and so they've been able to go back and contextualize these sections better than they have before so um this says uh, this revelation originally instructed the prophet Sidney Rigdon and Newell K. Whitney to travel to Missouri and organize the church's mercantile and publishing endeavors by creating a, quote, firm that would oversee these efforts, generating funds for the establishment of Zion and for the benefit of the poor. So the idea behind this, so they, they did this in a very creative way, but the idea behind this was that they were going to create a company you know, what they referred to as a firm that was going to facilitate the funding of people moving to Zion and being able to get the credit that they needed in order to to get loans and, and do what they needed to do, you know, sort of make the cash flow, right? So the section heading continues. The firm known as the United Firm was organized in April 1832 and disbanded in 1834. Sometime after its dissolution, under the direction of Joseph Smith, the phrase, quote, the affairs of the storehouse of the poor, unquote, replaced, quote, mercantile and publishing establishments in the revelation. And the word, quote, order replaced the word, quote, firm. Okay, so this is how United Firm became called United Order. And then out of this has sort of run this idea of the United Order as some sort of implementation of the law of consecration. Um, 
and and it makes sense how this how that developed and that happened as you read through this um but you also see that that this was like meant for a specific purpose and it has you know after that then got applied a lot more broadly to uh to this law of consecration concept um whereas in here it was really talking about like this specific um purpose that they started this thing in order to help the poor, right? And changing these names um, from something as a little more mundane as mercantile and publishing establishments to the affairs of the storehouse for the poor and something from firm that's a little more like business sounding, right? Over to order or united firm to united order. Um, Order is a little more spiritually sounding, right? You know, we have like something we call order to the priesthood or... You know, these these are things that have a much more religious tone overtone to them. Um, and so it, it makes sense that you would take this section that was sort of a, a very pragmatic revelation about how the saints were going to accomplish this specific thing and make the terms much more of a spiritual religious nature when you are trying to make the people understand uh, that they need to act in a certain way, right? Um, you might call that manipulative, but um, whether it's manipulative or not, the point was that people weren't understanding it in the way that it was intended. So, yeah, you know, with uh I, I like you talk there about the pragmatic purpose of this, you know, a very practical purpose behind this that is often given this really highly spiritualized version and and idea and meaning to it. And we can also see that as they were trying to carve out, and this is one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, and we've talked about a little bit as we've gone through the, these sections, but it's all about the identity that the saints were creating for themselves. Because, I mean, this is a brand new church. This is right now, we're just now getting into the second year of its existence. It already spans, you know, it starts in New York. Then they have to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles away until they have a new base in Kirtland with brand new people, with brand new things. They've left everything that they've known behind. Now they're in this, these new people in this new religion in Kirtland. And yet they've sent missionaries from Kirtland and from New York down to Missouri. And now they have like these new ideas of millennialism and of Zion coming out in this Missouri area. And so they are completely distanced by thousands of miles and they're both living in the frontier. You know, Kirtland at the time is still kind of frontier territory. Missouri is super frontier territory. They're on the, they're on the borderlands of the Indians that just kind of had been displaced through the whole Jacksonian thing. So this is a really weird time for America. And this is even a stranger time for a religion in America that's as unique as it is to be able to create the identity that it's it's creating. And so you end up having these, these Latter-day Saints who are of a particular, I mean, you got to have a particular personality, number one, to join a religion and a faith like this kind back then, but then to move and in, into the frontier and to hack yeah. your life out of the wilderness. I mean, this is this is not normal this is not normal behavior and then you still have 
the whole burgeoning of American, like Americana, right? So there are so many different layers of identity that are going on. This new church is beginning to, to formulate and what it, what it is. And so from that perspective of this kind of this massive, I don't know who I am or what we are yet. We have this thing coming out where Joseph is recognizing that because of this Americana vibe of frontierism, it's a it's a highly meritocracy based way of being. Like I'm going to go cut this out. I'm going to go you know claim the land. I'm going to go conquer the land. And you've kind of got to have that idea and that mentality to survive out there. And yet, when you get out there, and you have enough for your needs because you have planned, it's just basic human the a basic human trait for you to get out there and to be like, this is my stuff. I earned it. This is what is going to be. And so for them to have to sign over and be willing to sign over everything that they've worked for to out here in the frontier so that verse, it says right here that uh, in verse three, for verily I say unto you, the time hath come and is now at hand and now behold and lo, it must needs be that there be an organization of my people in regulating and establishing the affairs of the storehouse for the poor of my people, both in this place and in the land of Zion. And so we're beginning to recognize that, okay, you've taken care of yourself, but can you give up all of the earthly securities of what you've created for yourself? Can you give that up for the other who doesn't have? And what does that do to attack that meritocracy-based discipleship? Does meritocracy-based discipleship truly create faith? Or is there a breath of a difference to where meritocracy-based discipleship can it often be rooted in fear? To where this whole I earned mine is not really faith. It's a type of egoistic pride in hedging against disaster that doesn't follow the Sermon on the Mount, that whole take no thought for the morrow, the morrow take care of the things of itself kind of a deal. But we're really trying to earn ours and get ours and solidify ours. But yet here at this time, the Lord's saying, but I'm going to take care of all of you, especially the poor. And how practical this idea seems to be. You know, it doesn't turn out fine. It doesn't turn out, but it's a highly practical idea that really does strike at the root of the human experience in their time and place. And especially now, I mean, we're no different today. We still have this highly Americanized meritocracy based. We, we include this whole thing into our whole theology of works. And, and we have an abysmal doctrine of grace that it completely denies really grace, any kind of unearned grace. We only really have a theology of earned grace, regardless of what a few BYU theologians, how they want to spin that in the last 10 years. But really, that is the, the basic theology that we've been given and handed down. And it all comes from this basic Americana concept of like this merit, merit, I, I can never say it. Every time I think of this word, I have a hard time saying this word. <laughs> meritocratic. Like the, meritocratic. Is that even a word? The, 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 meritoc- the foundation of meritocracy. <laughs> You know, that we merit what we earn and in the foundation of how this comes into our Christianity and how this comes into our discipleship and how this comes into the way we present ourselves to the other. 
So when we, when I see the United firm for what it is and, and we demystify and take away this whole like mystical sacredness to it. And we just take it down to this very practical element that still strikes at the root of the human foils of American meritocracy. I'm like, I can easily, I, I, that's a really easy thing for me to see there. You know, the, there's kind of a theme here that actually continues through much of the history of the church. This, uh, this, newly formed religion in this newly formed country with this newly formed identity in this new land. So in one sense, uh, you know, Mormonism at this point is, is a very American religion, right? It's, it's been described that way. It's, uh, it's American to its core in a lot of ways, <laughs> um, you know, not the least of which is like the Book of Mormon itself, right? It's, it's supposedly this record that comes from America, right? So, so it's it's just so American. Um, it's very animated by this American spirit, even going out on the frontier, right, and and all this. And then you have this this thing that you're talking about here that that is almost. Um, like today we would talk about it as some sort of socialist experiment, right? At the time, there's just some communitarianism uh, involved in this, but it's still very uh, countercultural, right? This is still very anti-American. And so, it, but this trend kind of continues with a lot of things in the church. And in one sense, you know, you have uh, members of the church that are moving out West and colonizing the West is a very American thing, right? But then they're polygamists. Well, that's anti-American, right? So there, it's, it's interesting. There's these interesting um, uh, contradictions like in terms of Americana that happened throughout Latter-day Saint history that um, that on one hand make it, brand it very American and on the other hand brand it very anti-American. It's just a, it's just a fascinating dynamic that we see seeds of right here. Yeah, and that's really one of those dynamics that end up – being the seeds of their persecution in Missouri because the Latter-day Saints saw themselves as basically the pure emanation and fulfillment of American republicanism. They thought themselves as, as the people who were not just frontiersmen in a geographic sense, but they were friend, religious frontiersmen who were now really fully developing the whole spirit of American republicanism. That if we were really going to have the freedom to be able to worship as we please, then we then they were pushing the envelope about worshiping as we please. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, they weren't following necessarily the American republicanism of this of the nuances of how Protestant Christianity, you know, Methodism and ba the Baptists and and the Presbyterians, they weren't following these patterns. They were kind of forging ahead to their own version of Christianity that. <laughs> that didn't set right <laughs> with a lot of people, but it's still at the, at its core, you have these different ways that they have seen communalism lived, you know, like, like for instance, the, the, the Campbellites, you know, Sidney Rigdon and the failed communitarian, communitarian, uh, experiment there in Kirtland that happened just before Joseph got there. And, and this even happens and, and comes up in Nauvoo. Once the, I always forget his name. He's a socialist, uh, a guy peddling socialism came into Nauvoo and had given several lectures. And I, I think he really kind of overstepped his bounds when he 
at least in the Nauvoo setting, I, it, he may have even been able to get a further footing in the city if it wasn't for the fact that he said that Joseph is your prophet that can basically get you into eternity, but I'll be your prophet that'll kind of save you the economy here today and like everything here today. And, you know, that didn't settle well at all. So <laughs> at, at that point, Joseph gets up and gives a lecture about the failures of the the Rigdonite and the Campbellite communitarian uh, Kirtland days and about how it didn't work. And so he does, I don't believe in socialism. Well, it's really fascinating is that the communitarianism that was practiced then wasn't really modern day socialism. And, and so it's, it's just fascinating how these ideas evolve that Joseph is going to stand up against socialism using a communitarian failure and then use that as his, uh, as kind of his reason for disagreeing with socialism so we have to kind of see that what that guy was probably peddling as socialism was more communalism than it was anything else. But when we look at section 78, this is really fascinating because it really is a centralized authority that's taking the means of all of every, all the possessions and then it's reallocating possessions. That these things are owned by the church now. Everybody gives everything they have to the central authority and it's the central authority that then deems them out again as stewardships while maintaining legal control and ownership of those commodities. I mean, that that's literally the point here. I mean, they voluntarily gave it over. Uh, they weren't threatened by coercion or violence, like a necessary government tax. But this was, this was, this was a really interesting way of being able to look at, look at uh, kind of an economy about in a way about uh, dealing with the poor and how they were doing this. But in verse 11 and 12, I know you and I had talked a little bit about covenant making. And covenant making is one of those really fascinating conversations because covenant making is really, it, it, it's a one-sided ordeal. I see that God gives us covenants in his mercy and grace out of complete lack of necessity. Just basically lack of necessity on God's part. God's word is God's word. If God says he's going to do something, God is just going to be doing what God does. And... But it's us who have absolutely no idea or trust in God doing God's things. And so he, he gives us, so we have this like quid pro quo kind of thing going on. If you do this, I do this. If you, if you obey this, I'll do this. And so it's like this quid pro quo blessing. And, and it sets things up in this dualistic transactional way. Covenants are a fascinating thing. I don't think they have to be quid pro quo, but that's usually the way they're discussed. But he says here in verse 11, wherefore a commandment I given to you to prepare and organize yourself by a bond or everlasting covenant that cannot be broken. And he who breaketh it shall lose his office in standing in the church and shall be delivered over to the buffetings of Satan until the day of redemption. I think, I think invoking Satan here is a really interesting idea and the buffetings of Satan. But, mm -hmm. and I have, I have some thoughts about that, but what, what, uh, what did you, what did you think about that, Ben? Well, so, you know, we, as we were talking about covenants, that, uh, you know, it's not necessary that the Lord, when he speaks to us, he says, okay, you know, all the things that I've set up until now, I, I kind of meant them, but this next thing is a covenant. And so I really mean it, you know, it's like the Lord means everything he says, you know, whether he says it's a covenant or not, right? <laughs> what, he, what he does is he offers us, he says, hey, this is my, this is who I am. This is my actual mode of being. I'm going to offer you a mode 
for understanding my mode of being. And so we're going to call it a covenant, or you're going to call it a covenant. And what this means is, if you promise something, you have to do it. And and as you go along this, you'll understand that everything that I promise, I do. And so you're you're simply practicing like training wheels, right? <laughs> what it is to to live uh, uh, within that concept of you do everything you say you're going to do, just like I do. And so that's kind of how I see a covenant as just kind of offering us this microcosm of a way that we can um, sort of live uh, the way that God uh, makes and keeps promises, right? Um, as far as like uh, verse 12, you know, we, we've we've talked over and over and over again of this concept and, and character of, of Satan um, and how, how this is used as the accuser here. Um, what stood out to me this time wasn't so much this this character being you know, so delivered up to the buffetings of Satan, but it was actually the next phrase. It says, until the day of redemption. And, you know, I think previously I might have conceptualized that as, okay, day of redemption, we're talking like, uh, you know, end of the millennium, like I'm going to suffer for a thousand years, right? And... The day of redemption actually is a very subjective thing. <laughs> what we hear from prophets, and especially in the Book of Mormon all the time, today is the day of your salvation. Like your day of redemption is whatever you choose it to be. And so that's what's so fascinating about this is, is if you're delivered over to the buffetings of Satan, buffetings, right? So buffetings are um, like being hit with stuff, like bashed back and forth, right? And so like I see this as, as a very appropriate appropriate word in describing the accusations, right? You're kind of like accused from this side and accused from this side and you're kind of like slapped around so to speak until the day of redemption, right? Well, isn't that a description of our life? Like that's a description of my day. <laughs> you know, you, you you're, you're just like you got anxiety over this or accusation over that. Oh, I'm not doing very good at this. And you know, so it's like all these accusations you make against yourself or, or maybe you hear them from other people, but, but, you know, anxiety is mostly homegrown, right? It's within us. <laughs> and, um, and, and until your day of redemption, until you're just like, sit back and look up and be like, I don't have, this isn't how I have to live, right? I don't, I don't have to live in this constant anxiety and and frustration like i can look up and change my perspective repent right see god differently that's the day of redemption um so i i don't i don't conceptualize this as of some like you break a covenant okay you know you're you're damned for you know some specific period of time and then, you know, then you'll be redeemed after that period of time is up. But this is all very subjective to me. Yeah, I like I like what you brought up there about that day of your repentance. Do not procrastinate the day of your repentance. Because the day of repentance is whenever you choose for your day of repentance to it's be. It's today or it's it, tomorrow or it's whatever, you know. <laughs> it's whenever. It was it's it's two minutes from now or it's whenever you choose for it to be. And I like that. It's it's turning those buffetings of Satan, it's that accuser. And and, and this is what I find is fascinating is that the kind of the esoteric accuser 
is that one inside of ourselves that we do to ourselves. And this is really where, as I've studied the intellectual history of where the idea of Satan came from and how that evolved, um, this is this is really where a lot of those ideas come from. You know, there's there's very much an outer exterior es- exoteric version of Satan that you know, right about the 600 BC, or 500 BC, they end up being influenced by Zoroastrianism, and that's when we first have the idea of an embodied Satan and like an embodied evil. But until then, Satan was not considered evil. He was he was just like a prosecuting attorney. He was the accuser. He's the thing that he's like, no, that thing is not doing what that thing should be doing, which is why Satan ends up in heaven in the book of Job, because he's, it's not that he snuck in there. It was that there was this idea that Satan, to their understanding, was just that part of the heavens that accused things. And, and he accused Job of being not what everybody thought Job was. And then over time, you know, then we have the, the book of Enoch and about how Satan fell and, or how Lucifer fell. And that was attributed to Satan. And then, then we ended up having Satan and Lucifer being the same thing. And they bought him a meal. Anyway, it gets to be a thing. But through this whole conversation, I think it's beautiful here that just what you brought up, Ben, of delivered over to the buffeting. It's not God just being like, all right, here you go. I'm going to throw you in the pit with Satan. He's just going to destroy you and, and persecute you forever and ever and ever until this one particular day when it'll all be over. But it's that when we don't, when we choose to live in the false self, we're going to come into consistent contact with the accusing spirit within ourselves. And it's that accusing spirit within ourselves that causes all the shame and that causes all of the dread and everything that we deal with. And once we let go of that, we recognize the true self of what has always already been. And it's in that time when we let go and we follow that beatitude path that all of those things just fall off and we stand there in recognition of this self that was made in the image of God, that God pronounced good and it's always been good. It's always been worthy. And we finally recognize that. And then at that point, it's just letting that go. But until then, that buffeting is of Satan is really that thing of our own choosing and of our own make. And the minute we choose not to, it's over. It's an interesting concept. I love it. Well, is there anything else, Ben, here? I know we had uh, verse 17 and 18. We had both talked about a little bit about uh, little children. Did you have anything you wanted to, say, to add about that? They're just beautiful verses. I mean, you can just read them. I don't know if there's any commentary. Very rarely I say unto you, Ye are little children, and ye have not as yet understood how great blessings the Father hath in his own hands and prepared for you. And ye cannot bear all things now. Nevertheless, be of good cheer, for I will lead you along. The kingdom is yours, and the blessings thereof are yours, and the riches of eternity are yours. This is good stuff. That is good stuff. So... I. I'm going to make a little footnote here. I I actually kind of have a lot to say about this, but um, they're mostly musings. Verse 20 uh, introduces us to a word um, that I think there's, there's two times in the doctrine covenants that this is brought up um, outside of Adam on Diamon. Okay. So we have Adam on Diamon and then we have in verse 20 um, Christ 
the Redeemer referred to as the son Amun, or in the, elsewhere in the Doctrine and Covenants referred to as the son of Amun. Okay, so Amun is basically um, here just used as another name for God. Okay, now this word has a... Uh, <laughs> questionable roots, uh, you know, not, not questionable. That's probably not the right word. Uh, mysterious roots, <laughs> I guess is, is more the, the term here. Uh, I think Orson Pratt, uh, made some commentary on this. He talked about how this is the, the name of God in the pure language, you know, the Adamic language that, that this would be the name of God. Um, really it, it, what, what strikes me about this is simply, um, that it, it does find roots in other uh, linguistic traditions. And I'm always, yeah, I, I look at things linguistically a lot. I, I, I really like that. And so Amun actually uh, sounds a lot like the, the Greek um, beginning and end. You would say alpha and omega or om, right? So those are the, the, the primordial sort of sound of creation, um, is awe, right? And then you have the end, the completion of that. So the perfection of that thing, the alpha is the awe, and then the omega, om. Say so we, we use an omega symbol for ohm, like in electrical resistance, right? So people are going to be familiar with ohm. So it's om. So omen is sort of a an evolution of that term. Uh, Christ says he's alpha and omega. It means beginning and end. So it's the beginning of creation and the end of creation, the completion of it, the perfection of it. Completion meaning perfection or perfection meaning completion. Um, and then there's another interesting um, possibility root for this word, and it goes way back to uh, Egypt, Egyptian religion. Um, the main god for the, the majority of Egyptian um, religious history is Amun. And Amun is is the most important god that is uh, most referenced and and named people named after and so forth in Egyptian religion, and um, so not only does it sound like Amun, right, Amun, um, but it it makes sense that it would come up or be related to uh, Joseph Smith Joseph Smith's use of that term as a name for God, um, because so much of uh, what Joseph Smith did in terms of revelation actually has a lot of roots in uh, Egyptian religion. Um, even if we just start with the Book of Mormon, right? Okay, so we have what they called Reformed Egyptian characters. Lehi knew Egyptian. He was familiar with Egyptian religion. Um, and so a lot of what we get in the Book of Mormon um, could could even be conceptualized as very Egyptian in terms Egyptian religion heavily influenced Judaism. In fact, um, a lot of uh, you know a lot of religious scholars uh, would go back and say that actually uh, the the foundational uh, concepts of of Ju- Judaic um, conceptions of of religious practice or or gods or whatever actually grew out of Egyptian religion and. Um, just from like a, a purely biblical standpoint, we could say, well, that doesn't mean that it wasn't revealed. It's just simply when 
when God revealed himself to the Israelites, the way that they expressed and conceptualized that was in the terms that they already understood from Egyptian religion, right? So this is these are the terms that get passed down to us. That's actually where they come from. It doesn't mean that um, there wasn't actually a revelation. It just means that that's how they were articulated, right? Because that's the the tools they had to do it with. That was the language they had to do it with. So it, it, this was just a little linguistic um, curiosity to me, this name Amun. And I found those roots both in like the Greek that, that really, you know, ties right back into to how Christ refers to himself all the time. And then even way back into the Egyptian, which again, starts with the Book of Mormon, but then continues on with the Book of Abraham and then into Temple uh, especially into temple ceremony and, and rites that, that Joseph Smith passes on. So uh, I think it actually, you know, is, is a nice little um, allusion to that here in this section. That's awesome. Now, so, ben, ben, to close us out, you had something to say about the chapter heading in verse 79 or in section 79. I didn't even, <laughs> yeah. I did, I didn't even catch it until you brought it up. And then as I've been, I've been watching us uh, get closer and closer to the end. I'm like, we got it. We got, we at least give like 30 <laughs> seconds to this. <laughs> so uh, it, it's not, it's not actually the section heading I have to say about, except that it's super short. Um, it's the, it's the section summary that uh, you know you know how you get the section heading that gives you context and then you get the summary that says oh these verses talk about this and these verses talk about this and and the reason i want to bring it up here is is actually to to touch on a larger point it's not specifically about this section um so but but going to the section section 79 the 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 section summary says this you know 1 through 4 jared carter is called to preach the gospel by the comforter Okay, so these section summaries are not, they're not, you know, Joseph Smith didn't write them. They're not like part of the, the scripture or revelation. These are simply written as um, basically footnotes, um, study aids. These are study aids, right? If you're flipping through the scriptures like, wait, what does this section talk about? Oh, it's the one that talks about that. Oh, this section, oh, the one talks about that, right? All this to say that um, when you actually go and read this section, these four verses, it does not say that. So this says, Jared Carter is called to preach the gospel by the comforter. Then you read those four verses, they don't say that. So this is not to say, I, I'm, I'm not trying to make the point that Jared Carter wasn't called to preach the gospel by the comforter. Maybe he was. <laughs> I'm simply making the point that the section summaries don't always actually express what the section actually says. And so in my opinion, they should be largely ignored. <laughs> um, and because what I think they do is they, they build um, in your mind a preconception of what the section says. And so um, rather than going to what it actually says, sometimes we get these ideas in our mind from the summary about what it says, and then we read those into the section. Um, this happened. Uh, this happened a lot in the Book of Mormon, or still happens a lot in the Book of Mormon. And and one of the ones that comes to mind was Alma chapter eleven. So in in previous versions of the Book of Mormon, these the chapter summary in Alma chapter eleven um, said Nephite coinage is set forth, right? And this was brought up many times by people uh, are saying, oh, well, you know, the Nephites couldn't have had coins because blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, whether they had coins or not, the chapter actually says nothing about coins, right? 
Um, nothing at all about coins. And yet the chapter summary at the beginning says that its coinage is set out. And so actually in the newer version of the scriptures, they change that. They just say their their monetary system, right? Um, and so all this to say that sometimes we can get wrong interpretations, wrong ideas from section or chapter uh, summaries. And um, it, it might be really beneficial to just ignore them. <laughs> That's an awesome place to end. <laughs> so, well, well, everyone, thank you for sticking around and thank you for listening. And thank you for those who have sent us messages recently. I've tried to respond to as many of them as I, as I can as quickly as possible. I have been on the road and if there is anyone that I've missed, I apologize. I'm going to keep on trying to see the messages as they come in and respond quickly. So keep them coming in. And thank you for, uh, for sharing the podcast. I know there's many who I've talked to in the last several weeks and who've messaged saying that they've uh, they've shared this with friends and family and it's been beneficial. And uh, and that really makes all the time and effort in putting these together all, all the more worthwhile. We appreciate all the support. Until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>